0: We are in Romans chapter 6, so please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6 or swipe to Romans chapter 6. We begin this morning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Lord, as we come this morning to your word, we want to remember your instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for our leaders, kings and rulers. And we do that this morning for our own president. We do that for our senators and representatives and governors and magistrates and all of the various levels of our government. You have instituted our government and our laws for the keeping of order in this life. And we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in, in both uh, their hearts and in policies that, that make the road for the gospel the clearest. We are aimed at eternity, not this life. We are citizens of heaven, not only of our country. And so we lift prayers for them And Lord, as we come to this text in Romans chapter 6, we are all in different places. I know that there are some this morning who hear these words in Romans, and they are your children, and they are with me in the battle against sin. Lord, strengthen us with these words. Give us fortitude. And Lord, there are others who are adamantly opposed. There are those who hear this and it is like uh, falling on hard-packed soil. There is no reception. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would crack open those hearts. And then, Lord, there are some who hear this and they are on the sidelines. They know the truth, but they have never come to grips with the gospel. They have never come to grips with what it means to really forsake the dominion of sin and to come and to be saved, to be cleansed from sin, to be justified and made right with you. They may be playing a game. They may be playing at religion. They may be trying to please people, to serve an impression. For those folks, Lord, I pray that you too would use these words to convict and to move. We owe everything to you, Lord. You and you alone are worthy. Give us now ears to hear, eyes to see. In your name we pray. Amen. The terms slave and slavery in our culture, of course, come with much baggage, especially in the United States. We cannot talk about slavery without talking about racism and racial divides, that is part of our culture's history. In the Greek, the word here is doulos. Now, I don't usually throw Greek words around, even though I love the Greek language, but this is an important word, and it's a very common word in our New Testament. It is the word doulos, and it can mean slave. It can also mean servant. It can mean various levels of servitude. You could even use it as a capital letter and say a servant, someone who represents a mighty master. The word slave is the right word for Romans chapter 6. In fact, if we were to change this word to servant or service instead of slavery, we would be softening what Paul is really trying to say and we would be skewing it. Paul is talking about absolute slavery. Now, slavery was a familiar institution in the New Testament era. In fact, there are some estimates that in the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered freedmen. That there were actually more people in the population of the Roman Empire that would call themselves owned by somebody else then there were people who would say they were owners or freedmen some slaves were forced into slavery that might be because of military conquest it might be by because of some law but many were forced into slavery but others were slaves voluntarily many people would come to the edge of financial bankruptcy and shame, public shame, and instead of enduring that, they would sell themselves into slavery instead of accepting bankruptcy, debt, shame, prison. And thus, you see in these passages the word present here, present. Some slaves were forced, involuntary servitude, and others were unforced. They were voluntary they would give themselves into slavery. Paul uses this imagery here to capture two key truths. And by the way, in, in that day and age, too, you know, again, we think culturally about slavery as abuse. How can we think of owning somebody else and not having freedoms? In that culture, many slaves, now, some were abused, no doubt. But many slaves acted with a lot of authority. Some of them even had prestige. There were some slaves in very wealthy, prestigious households that had higher rank and more authority in life than other freedmen because of the household they belonged to. Now, I say all that just to, to give you a picture of what slavery was like there. Paul is actually pulling on two key things about slavery to make his point to us here. One is submission. One is submission. Slavery, this imagery of being a slave, pictures and expresses someone who is in complete submission to someone or something else. This is a status or this is a state of being. Secondly, Paul is picturing allegiance. He is picturing loyalty to someone or something. This is a a willingness to belong to. It may sound extreme, but part of your identity as a Christian is to be or to have the identity of a slave. It's slavery. Slavery, Paul says here, to righteousness. Paul wants us to understand this identity. And so he first lays out a fundamental truth here in verses 15 and 16. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, no way. Sound familiar? This is an echo of chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No way, by no means, so Paul is still addressing here, in verse 15, this dilemma of sin. If we have been justified before God, if we stand before God in his courtroom, made right with him in a right relationship with him, if we have received by faith God's grace gift of forgiveness for all of our sins, then what do we do with sin sin which is still present in our lives, sin that is still warring against us, sin that is still trying to dominate us, what are we supposed to do with it? Grace abounds where sin is. We are under grace and not under law. And so we must not continue in sin. This is what Paul's getting at here in the whole chapter. We cannot just continue to go through the motions of sin and live life the same way. When you come to Christ, you are transformed. And I will point again to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which I've mentioned numerous times over the last few weeks. If any man is found in Christ, if any person has come to Christ and been justified and been saved, That person is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It is transformation, not something that's added to your life. Paul says, in fact, we have died to sin. We have been raised to new life. And so our partnership with sin a willing partnership on our part has been severed forever and we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's chapter six, verse 11. So Paul's imagery of slavery is really an elaboration on what it means to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. To be alive to God means to live in submission to him. And when Paul asks here, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? He's saying, don't you see Everyone is a slave to someone. Everybody is a slave. Now, we, especially being Americans, the idea of being beholden to anybody, being a slave to anybody, is unthinkable. Our entire nation, our laws, our jurisprudence, our Everything is built on individual equality and liberty, justice and liberty for all. Isn't that our pledge of allegiance to the flag? We value freedom. But when it comes to the condition of the human life, the human heart, the human race as a whole, no one is autonomous No one is his or her own master. Individual freedom in reality, as we think of it, is an illusion. Everyone is a slave. Every person is a slave, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So there are only two paths, there are only two realms, there are only two masters, there is no third category, there is no third category of freedom or neutrality, every person is a slave either of sin or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So obedience then is a sign of ownership. You are slaves, look at what he says, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. A slave of sin faces death. This is eternal death. This is an eternity of judgment separated from God. A slave to righteousness is defined by his or her obedience which leads to right living, a life that matches our union with Christ. That's what he means by here, righteousness. You are slaves to the one whom you obey. You can't say, I belong to this master, but obey this master over here. It's one or the other. This is Paul's whole, whole argument, isn't it? We can't continue in sin. The sin is not our master anymore. Now let's talk about obedience for a minute. We tend to not like this word, and there are some reasons for that. We have trouble, I think, reconciling obedience with grace, don't we? When we hear the word obedience, we think achievement. If we think someone in authority over us says, obey, we hear, check off the box, jump through the hoop, do what I say. We think achievement, we think external conformity. We think about adhering to a rule, regardless of what's going on inside, it's just obey. And it feels harsh and it feels dark. I just, I have to obey, I've got to grind this out. That's that's kind of what I think the word obey for us. That's kind of the, the feeling that it carries. That's what we hear. But listen, being a Christian means transformation, and that is not legalism. Legalism is not obeying what God actually commands or holding others to obey what God actually commands. Legalism is a system that people add to what God commands that sets up a false standard of righteousness. That's what legalism is. And legalism is based on achievement because the false standard of righteousness we can can keep. We can grind it out. We can keep the rules, rules that we make up and then redefine as standards of righteousness. And those rules can be do rules, you've got to do this, you must do that. And they can be prohibitions, they can be do not rules, you cannot do that, do not do that. Systems of legalism, and some of you have grown up in very legalistic systems where righteousness was defined as the length of your skirt or how you wore your hair or which sidewalk you walked on or whatever it was, Those became all of the rules that you had to obey and were then defined as righteousness. But Christian obedience is not legalism. Following Christ and obeying Christ is not legalism. Christian obedience is to delight in God's commands. It's to delight in them. It's to recognize who God is and say, You are worthy of my obedience. You are in charge. You are Lord. You are Master. This is one reason that we at Crossway chose the word obey in one of our core commitments obey the truth. And as elders, we wrestled through using that word. Do we use the word obey? Part of the reason we chose it is because it cuts against the grain of a, a misunderstanding of what obedience is. And finally, we said, Jesus is Lord. We're called as a people to be an obedient church, to be an obedient people, to obey the truth. Not just claim that we believe some truth or doctrinal statement, but we obey it, we live it out. Everyone is a slave. A Christian is a slave to righteousness. And a slave to righteousness is defined by obedience, an obedient life. Paul goes on here then to give us three marks of the slave to righteousness. What does it mean to be a slave to righteousness? What does that look like? Well, first he tells us that as a slave to righteousness, you have already changed masters. There's a past aspect, there's a present aspect, and there's a future aspect to this being slaves to righteousness. This is the past one. You have already changed masters. He emphasizes again this position. You'll notice here you were once, you have become. You once were this, you have become this. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, what does this changing of masters involve? Well, now you are obedient from the heart. Here we go. Here's the Christian obedience. This is obedience that delights in God's commands. We are obedient from the heart. It is a sincere obedience, not just a show. It is a meaningful obedience, not just empty hoop-jumping. It is an obedience that flows out of a love for God, not an obedience that feels like it has to achieve God's love or somehow earn God's love. Obedience from the heart is possible because the heart has been changed. The heart has been changed. This is a new kind of slavery. This is a new kind of servitude. Obedience from the heart displays allegiance. That's why I say Paul is after allegiance here. Not just submission, but glad submission. Submission that says, I love you. I belong to you. You've saved me. You died for me. You were the propitiation for my sins. You took the wrath of God in my place on the cross, and you own me. There is a thrill and a joy to this slavery that cannot be understood any other way. And only someone who is saved, only someone who belongs to God, someone who has seen his glory and the the wretchedness of their own sin and the the eternal value of God's grace, only that person can rejoice in saying, you own me. I belong completely to you. And I have no rights, and I have no other freedom other than a freedom to be yours. This is allegiance to a new master. So there is this obedience from the heart. And what are we obedient to? Well, we are being formed by teaching. This is what he says here. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, here's the thing about this word standard. The word is the word, uh, a word from which we get the word type. And if you think of, I know we are compute, the computer age. We have keyboarding. We don't even use keyboards anymore. We just use little buttons on a screen. But if you think back several years, decades, to actual typewriters. You know, that's where it began, folks. It began with a typewriter. Actually, it began with Gutenberg and the printing press, okay? But eventually, they worked out typewriters, and they were these things that had these keys, and you had to actually hit them with your fingers and move a lever that had one letter on it, and it would pop ink onto paper, and that was a typewriter. And it would reach the end and go, jing, and then you would have to manually slide it back over so, that it would start and type from left to right. Maybe you've seen them in movies. So, that was a typewriter. That's a type, it's a, it's a pattern or a stamp. In fact, the word here can, can be translated pattern or even mold. This transfer of ownership includes a process, watch, of having our behavior shaped by a pattern or a mold of instruction in truth. That's what he means when he says standard of teaching. He doesn't mean standard like here's the standard as a bar to be reached. He means this is a pattern or a type. This is something that is molding you. It is shaping you. You are being reshaped by this teaching. And he's saying you are obedient from the heart To this molding teaching that is reshaping every part of your life, every part of your thinking and action. That's what he's talking about. Doctrine is never theory, doctrine is always practice. Again, back to our core commitment as a church we obey what? The truth. Truth means something. Truth is what God has said is true. It is absolute. We are talking about capital T truth. We obey the truth, but, but the truth isn't theory, it's always practice. Becoming obedient from the heart means a new formation of life. That's why when someone says they are a Christian, but they don't live differently, they're not in a process of changing. We're all changing. There's still sin. That's what this whole, these two chapters are about here, six and seven, especially. But someone who just says, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I've got, I got saved, or I had this experience, or I've been born again, or whatever phraseology they use, but there is no change. There is no sorrow over sin. There is no struggle. I have to question, are you really a Christian? Have you really come to Christ? Because someone who has is being formed to truth. Then there is this summary. Again, you see this having been and have become, having been free from sin, You have become slaves of righteousness. You used to be in slavery to sin. Now you're in slavery to righteousness. It's the first time, though, that in all of this that Paul uses the word free. The Christian life is a life of freedom, freedom from sin and its reign over your life and its consequences But you don't become masterless. You don't go from slavery to sin to some state or category of being your own master. You don't become kingdomless. You don't move out of the kingdom and the dominion of sin and death and move into your own little kingdom. You have become slaves of righteousness. You belong to somebody. You are still owned. So as a slave of righteousness then, the first thing that Paul says is that you have already changed masters. You've already changed. That that is something that has already taken place. You've already been freed. You now are slaves of righteousness. Understand what you have left what you have been freed from, and who you really are now. Secondly, as a slave to righteousness, you must now be sanctified. You must now be sanctified. He says here in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Now, all Paul means by this is that slavery is just an analogy the truth is greater than what we think of as slavery. Maybe Paul is trying to hedge against misunderstandings about the nature of this slavery to righteousness so that we don't attach a lot of our baggage about slavery to it. Slavery is just an analogy, but this slavery analogy, what he's, the truth behind it is, transcends that. But our limitations, our weaknesses as humans. People, as human beings, in this life, require incomplete analogies. Saying, look, I'm just trying to explain something to you. I'm trying to portray something. Picture this so that you understand it. And then he goes on, and you see it again. Here we go. Just as, do you see that? For just as you once. Then you look down, so now so now present your members. We have it again. Just as this used to be true, so now this. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. That's what your life used to be, you know. Presenting yourself to impurity and lawlessness, which only exponentially grew, exponentially grew into more lawlessness. So now present yourselves, I'm sorry, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This really is the center of everything he's saying here. If you take verses 15 through 23, this is right in the middle and it really is the center of what he's getting at. And it hinges on these two words. The first one is present. Present. The word present often means to stand or stand before. It's usually translated that way. It's it's to stand in the presence of or to stand before. It is the picture of a slave who stands before his or her master in their master's presence, presenting himself or herself to their master's disposal, putting themselves at his disposal. It's coming in front of them and and waiting on them, looking at them and waiting for them to give you an order, to give you a task, to send you somewhere. That's what Paul means here when he says present. It's to stand in front of them and say, I am ready to serve you. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul uses the same word to summarize all of Christian living when he says, and many of you know this verse, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the same word. I appeal you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So here it is then. It's this idea of... you. We used to present ourselves to sin. We used to stand in the presence of sin as a master and give ourselves to impurity and lawlessness because that's what sin demands. But now, so now you must. So the other word then is members. What is he talking about? And we've seen this word before, earlier in chapter six. He's not talking about body parts. He's not talking about your hands and your eyes and your feet. These are the members. He's talking about all the parts of your life, all of the parts of your being and your existence. So, your members then are how you think, your members are how you speak, your members are how you conduct business, how you make decisions. Your members even includes your wealth, your time, your talents. Do you have musical abilities? Do you have athletic abilities? Do you have scholarly abilities? Do you do hard work? Do you have a lot of energy? Whatever all of those various capacities and faculties of your life and being, those are your members. He is saying, present your members everything. It's all your capacities, all your faculties. You used to present all of your capacities, all of your finances, all of your abilities, your hobbies, your talents, your thought life to the master of sin. So now, just as you once did that, now present all of these to righteousness. You can't take some members and claim that you're giving them to righteousness and withhold other members and still submit them to sin. Can't do that. Just as you once did that, present all of these to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. And this is the real goal. The word sanctification is holiness. It's being set apart. Now, in one sense, and we, we see often in the New Testament that the, uh, the writers of the New Testament will talk about sanctification as something that's already taken place. That we are already sanctified. At the moment we come to Christ and we become his, we are converted. We are already set apart to him as his people. We're already sanctified. But sanctification is also spoken of as a process. This process of change, this process of holiness, becoming holy. That's what Paul is talking about here. This is the real goal. Presenting yourself... Standing before righteousness in servitude is to say, I am ready to be made holy, to pursue holy things. Paul's talking about our practice here, living a holy life. And again, we see that Paul is saying, let how you live match how God has already changed you. You've already changed masters, Now present yourselves to your new master, the righteousness, as slaves of righteousness. This leads to holiness. Is holiness not the character of God? In fact, God's holiness defines everything else. Is God love? Yes. He's holy love. Is he mighty? Yes. Holy mightiness. And on. God is holy, completely right and pure. This is what Paul is calling us to. We're to pursue that. We're to present And this, this whole imagery of presenting ourselves is just another way of saying pursue holiness in your life. Pursue holiness. Oh, I, I said that the Bible is is a calling us to holiness here. This is what, as slaves of righteousness, we are to be sanctified. This is is our responsibility. Now, thirdly, Paul says, as a slave to righteousness, you have already changed, masters, that's the past. You must now be sanctified, that's the present, And now he talks about the future, verse 20. As a slave to righteousness, you will receive eternal life. You will receive eternal life. Not you will earn eternal life, but you will receive it because you are a slave to righteousness. Now again, we see in verse 20, for when you were, And if you look down at the beginning of verse 22, but now, here it is again. He's just back and forth, right? For when you were this, but now this. And he reasons out the benefits of this transfer of ownership here. This is the end. These are the ends. These are the final results. He says, what fruit... Right? What fruit? What were your returns on that investment of your members in the servitude of sin? The end of those things is death. Again, this is eternal death. This is an eternity of judgment. Now, keep in mind, Paul is reasoning with a believer. He's reasoning with us as his people as God's people, who are already under a new master. To an unbeliever, this sounds absurd, doesn't it? If, if you say to someone who, who isn't a Christian, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, someone who isn't a Christian isn't ashamed of those things yet. They don't see them as something leading To eternal death. He is reasoning this this out with believers. To an unbeliever, it's just gobbledygook. The argument is this. If you are free from sin, why serve sin? When when you were under slavery, when you were a slave to sin, all you were headed toward was eternal death and judgment that was all the fruit you were getting out of it, and you know that, that's why you came to Christ, why would you still submit to it? Why would you still stand in the presence of sin and present all of your capacities, any of them? Because now that you, verse 22, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So the fruit, by presenting yourself to righteousness, the fruit of that is what? Sanctification. Becoming holy. And receiving eternal life. And just in case any of us were to hear that and come out with, oh, the fruit of righteousness is eternal life by by doing this, I'm achieving or earning, Paul makes this statement in verse 23, and I said the Bible is reasoning with believers here, but verse 23 is really a statement for all. Whether you are a believer or whether you're an unbeliever. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here we go wages versus gift. If you remain under the mastery of sin, you get what you've earned. Now, in sports, I love the phrase, and you've seen it, it becomes one of those slogans, earn everything. It's talking about hard work, industry, being competitive. Earn everything. But don't ever transfer that into eternal life or death. Because if you want to earn anything You get what you earn, and it's death. That is the wages of sin. That's what gets paid out to you. So if you demand, I've earned this. This is what I've achieved. That is exactly what you will get. And all you've achieved, the only fruit you get, is eternal death and damnation. But, right, but God offers you a gift, a free gift, eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And for a believer, a Christian, we look at that and we go, that's that's right. I'm no longer earning wages. I have already received the free gift of God. Eternal life. Paul, though, is pointing to the future, and he's saying that the eternal life, the life we know now, has a a real end, a fullness to it that we don't know yet. Eternal life versus eternal death. And you notice, though, here that he, he says, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord our lord and what paul is what paul then is reinforcing is this reality that the christian life is a life of slavery to righteousness because jesus is lord he saves us because he is lord if he wasn't lord he couldn't save but he is lord of all and he saves and so paul says to us, look, if you're going to fight sin, if you're going to defeat sin, right, you're dead to sin, you're alive to God in Christ, understand that your life then is a life of submission to righteousness, that you are to live lives of obedience. And understand, you've already changed masters, and it is time now to be sanctified. You are to present yourselves, you are to pursue it, And in the end, understand the results of that. The fruit of that is eternal life. And Paul isn't saying, if you don't, you won't get eternal life. He's saying, you get eternal life. And if you're getting eternal life, if you're slated, if you're scheduled by the promise of God to receive the fullness of eternal life, why would you be submitting yourselves still to sin? Leave that behind and submit yourselves to God. Present everything, every part of you to him, right? Lord, I just pray that you would help us to apply these things, that you would help us to live them out. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us to preach Romans 6 to ourselves, that we are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus, that we are now slaves of righteousness, that we must present our members everything that we are. And Lord, every one of us can, can look from day to day at certain capacities and faculties of ourselves and say, yep, yeah, no, that was not submitted to Christ. No, that was not. I was not being a faithful slave of righteousness. Lord, that is part of the process, and I pray that you would encourage your people, all of us who are in this fight, Lord, to to never despair, but to remember your promise. The wages of sin is death, but we have left that behind. The new has come, and the free gift, your free gift is eternal life. We give you praise and we give you glory.